Guest speaker today, it's uh, Pastor Keith Koteski. He and his family are here today, and um, he's going to bring the word to us. And uh, hopefully afterwards, you guys can meet up with him, have a brief talk or whatever, and get to know him better. I Probably more of you know him better than I did. We just met a little bit ago, but so far, so good, right? So far, so good. <laughs> All right, it's great to have him. Let's pray for him before he, we just turn it over to him. Father, we're so grateful for Keith and his family that... Uh, their hearts are to continue to deliver your word to folks, to our congregation today specifically. And we just ask that you be with him today, Lord, and just speak to his heart as he speaks to us. And we look forward to hearing from you through it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks. Good to be back with you. We were here last fall, I think, at some point, but grateful to uh, Pastor Earl and Pastor Joel for the opportunity to be back. I actually remember pretty vividly um, Pastor Earl's introduction the last time I was here because I think he said something about Keith is assistant professor of Christian ministry at Bethel College, which is certainly true, and he, he said he teaches homiletics or preaching there, and then he looked at me and he said, so the pressure is on. Like, and I felt like uh, I had to get it right that I was being judged uh, for that. So it is good to, good to be back with you and good to, uh, good to be back uh, kind of anticipating the year ahead at Bethel College. Let me just say, uh, by way of introduction, thank you to many of you who support Bethel College in a number of ways. You pray for us. Uh, a number of you support uh, the work that Bethel is doing financially, and we're grateful for all that you do uh, to do that as we seek at Bethel to shape uh, people not just in ministry, but in all walks of life, all, uh, all vocations as they step into that, to be leaders in their church and, uh, and in the world, and uh, really seeking to shape students who are going to go out and be a transformative and redemptive influence in the world in which we live. And we've been reminded, as Nate has already mentioned this morning during our prayer time, and as we saw some of the events in Charlottesville, Virginia unfold yesterday, just reminded of the need. Uh, for people who can be agents of transformation for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom in the world. And so thank you for the support that you're giving to that in, in so many ways. It's a delight to be back with you in a place where I know we have a number of alumni and, uh, and a number of supporters. So thanks for all you do there. But as we come to the word this morning, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, uh, if you have them in whatever form that may be, to Luke chapter 9, whether you have that in printed form, you've got it on your phone, or I'm sure as Nate has uh, completely memorized the full scripture, so you can just access Luke chapter 9. Yeah, nice. <laughs> he just pulls that out so that everybody else feels comfortable uh, this morning. So turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to read from verses 57 through uh, 62 here in, uh, in just a moment. But as you're, as you're turning there, and by way of introduction, let me just note that I grew up actually in, uh, in a little town in central Kentucky, and we, we kind of grew up in, in Kentucky. Um, basketball is a deal, college basketball in particular. I've learned in the time that I've spent in Indiana, that's true here as well. But, uh, but I grew up as a fan of uh, Kentucky basketball, and I realized right away that that kind of puts me at odds with, uh, with several of you. But we can still be friends. I'm confident of that. Uh, but, uh, but Kentucky basketball was a big deal, and, and much like it is at IU uh, or Purdue or Notre Dame, uh, in, uh, in the place that I now live here in South Bend. You know, people will do anything for, uh, for tickets. They'll do anything to be at a game. And, and, and in fact, as I was growing up, it was hard to get tickets for a Kentucky basketball game because, I mean, people were just such great fans. They would go to great lengths. They would do anything uh, for that. And there's a, there's a legendary story in Kentucky about one of those games in particular with uh, kind of the rival team, the University of Louisville. It almost feels wrong 
to say that out. You know, like it's just that they're the rival team, and if you, you know, if you're going to get to any game, you're at the Louisville game. And and the legendary story is told of, of of a family that went to one of these games at Rupp Arena in Lexington, there, ready for the big basketball game with Louisville and that kind of thing. And they they kept getting distracted as they were watching the pregame uh, events unfold by the fact that there was an older lady of quite quite some age in front of them, and then there was an empty seat next to her, and that's just unheard of. You didn't have empty seats at a Kentucky basketball game, let alone the game with the arch rival and nemesis, uh, the University of Louisville uh, there. And so eventually, curiosity got the better of, uh, of the lady who was sitting behind this older lady. And she finally reached down. She just had to know. She reached down and tapped the lady on her shoulder. And she said, ma'am, she said, I can't, I can't help but wonder. She said, and notice that there's, there's an empty next to you. And that's, that's just almost unheard of. That just doesn't happen. These games sell out all the time. She said, um, why is there, why, why would there be an empty seat here? And she said, she said, oh, she said that, um, that seat belonged to my, um, my late husband. She said, we've had, we've been season ticket holders here for the last 28 years and coming to the basketball games for, for Kentucky. That, that was just something we did, um, you know, together. And, and, that was his seat. And she said, oh, she said, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. I'm sorry about the loss of your husband, she said. But if you don't mind me asking, I'm just, I'm kind of curious, she said. Was, was it really not possible for you to find another family member who might be willing to come? And, and if not family, at least a friend or something, a close friend that you could bring with you? And she said, she said, oh, silly, they're all at his funeral. <laughs> she would do anything, right, to, uh, to get to a basketball game, especially with Louisville. I'm not sure that that's actually true, though I would say this, it, it could be. <laughs> Some of the fans are that serious, right? And I want us to think together this morning in the time that we have about just how serious we are, perhaps not about college basketball, but to what lengths we will go in our willingness to follow Jesus and be obedient to him whatever he says. Are there places where we would draw lines and just say, no, we won't? Or are we completely sold out? Are we all in for uh, what Jesus has called us to do, much like those fans? Some of you will remember the old TV commercials for the Klondike bars, those those beautiful tastes of heaven on earth that, uh, that I, I so much love. But if you recall some of the commercials, they would ask people, you know, what would you do ooh, ooh, for a uh, Klondike bar, right? And so they would ask people, you know, if they would do certain crazy things or wild things uh, just just for the sake of one of those delicious uh, bites of chocolate and ice cream uh, that my son and I actually love to uh, in, indulge in together. And and it's uh, more consider together uh, what we read in Luke chapter nine about the call to follow Jesus. Uh, what would you do ooh, ooh, to follow? and uh, be completely devoted to him. And to help us do that, I want us to look at Luke chapter 9, about three encounters that Jesus has along the road. It's not just along the road anywhere, and it's not just like Jesus is hanging out. But Jesus actually here in Luke chapter 9 has, is at a very crucial point, a very significant moment in his ministry. Earlier in chapter 9, Luke tells us that uh, Jesus has now uh, set his sights on, he has resolved uh, to journey to Jerusalem. And he knows 
good and well what that will mean. He spent a lot of his ministry uh, farther north in uh, the region of Galilee, and uh, now he, uh, he sets his sights, he sets his face toward, actually literally, in the Greek there, he sets his face toward Jerusalem, knowing full well that for him that will involve his trial, his betrayal, his trial, his suffering, uh, and death on the cross, and ultimately resurrection. So Jesus knows, knows full well what is before him and what that will require of him is willing, by the way, to, uh, to be all in in that mission. And as he makes his way along the road with his sights set in that uh, way, he encounters three people along the road who have brief conversations. We get brief vignettes in what Luke tells us that challenges us on the degree to which we're truly willing to follow Christ. And I want us to look at those now. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first... Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, and we are the clay. In Christ's name, amen. I have to admit, one of the first times I was studying this passage of Scripture, I found it a little troubling, if we're to be honest, um, because Jesus' response to some of these people along the road didn't seem to fit what I would have thought, or perhaps wouldn't have been the responses that I might have had if I were him. There were points here at which Jesus seems rather demanding, points at which he seems rather direct, and, and points at which, honestly, what he says seem maybe like um, ultra-challenging for all of us. His, his responses are short. This man wants to follow him, and Jesus kind of gives him almost a rebuke along the road, and he invites others to follow, and they make what seem to be reasonable requests that we might expect of Jesus, and yet Jesus seems to have some words that seem rigid, if not, if not downright harsh. And yet, I think as we look a little more closely at what Jesus is really here, we'll find that they, uh, they fit well with the calling that Jesus makes on our lives. And perhaps the discomfort is the challenge that they give to us. But to unpack this, let me, let me just try to give some characterization to the responses of these people along the road. And for the sake of just labeling some of this so that we can remember it well, let me talk about the first gentleman that Jesus encounters along the road with the phrase, cheap words. Because the first man who comes along the road to Jesus says some, what we might think to be some very good things, and, uh, and we would think Jesus would want to reward that and encourage him. And yet Jesus challenges the man because his words are kind of cheap. He underestimates the cost of what it will mean to really follow Jesus. And I think it's easy for us to do the same. Easy for us in a service of worship like this on a Sunday morning to say, oh Lord, I'm all in for you. Whatever it is you'll ask of me. And then Jesus challenges us with uh, asking us of uh, something very strong or costly or that involves sacrifice. And we're kind of going, 
Now, wait a minute. I'm not sure about that. Let me give you an example. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you said something and then you discovered after you got into the situation that you were actually committing to something that was far more costly, far more significant or challenging to you than you thought you were committing to? Ever had, ever had that kind of moment in your life? Let me share. Uh, a few years ago, I had one of those moments in ministry, actually, uh, that, uh, that I kind of got into something with, uh, with what I will call some cheap words. Not, not insincere words, don't misunderstand me there, but, but words that, that said one thing and I just didn't really understand kind of the commitment that I was making in all of that. Uh, about four years ago, actually, my wife and I were driving down to Kentucky. I was actually going to be preaching at a service uh, at the college that my wife and I graduated from. And I was, I was driving down. My assistant called me at the time. I was the senior pastor at Avalon Missionary Church in Fort Wayne. And she said, Pastor Keith, she said, I just got a call from, and she named the person. And, and it was a person that, um, that no longer attended our church, but actually had a number of years before, even before I was in ministry there. But uh, her, uh, her adult daughter had passed away in a very tragic situation in Fort Wayne at the time. She had actually been missing for about a week. She had been all over the news, and, uh, and eventually about a week after she had gone missing, they found, um, they found her body. She had taken her own life, and they found her body in a grove of trees in a city park. Just a, a tragic, desperate situation, and she said this lady had called and wondered if it would be all right if they had a memorial service for their daughter at our church like a week um, from from that Saturday. And I said, I said, oh, sure, that'd be, that'd be fine. And she said, Pastor Keith, she said, she also asked if you would be willing to do something as a part of that service. And I said, oh, sure, yeah, tell her I'd be happy to do whatever. Um, and just, just have her call the office next week when I'm back in town and we'll, we'll work out. And I'm thinking, you know, she would like me to offer a prayer for the family, perhaps uh, read a passage of scripture as a part of the funeral service. Oh, sure, I would be happy to. Words can be cheap when we don't understand what we're really committing to. A few days went by. I returned to Fort Wayne. I was back at the office. It was like Thursday, so just a couple of days before Saturday when this service was to be held at our church. And, uh, and she finally called, and she said, Pastor Keith, I've been meaning to get in touch with you, but today was the first day that my daughter's husband has been sober since she had disappeared. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, you know, but um, I'm, you know, we're happy to host the service here on Saturday. What is it that you would like me to do for the service? And she said, well, whatever, whatever it is that you would normally do for a funeral service. And I began to realize in that moment that when I said, oh, sure, whatever she would like me to do, I was actually committing to do the entire funeral service for a lady who I had never met before, for a family who no longer attended our church. And so immediately I began scribbling some notes. Well, I guess I better better uh, make some notes on this. I said, well, I, I never met your daughter. Could you tell me a little bit about her? And, and um, she, she, she didn't give me a whole lot of material to work with, but I began to pick up that perhaps her daughter had lived a very troubled life and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. But uh, I said, well, I, I'll put together a service in preparation uh, for, uh, for Saturday. And so I did kind of put together a very general service for someone that I had never met and didn't know at all. I was on my way to our church that Saturday morning to coach my little kindergartners in upward soccer. Uh, we, had, we did upward soccer at our church as an outreach in the community. In fact, we were known in the community as the soccer church by people who, uh, who didn't attend church that because they saw us out doing that. So I'm on my way to coach my little kindergartners in the, in the game, and I got a text message from somebody in our church uh, who happened to know the family who said, hey, Pastor Keith, you might want to put away all the loose electronic items in our West Campus Chapel. Some of the people in this family may have sticky fingers. 
that's interesting. And was, was um, I didn't think a judgment on part of this person. I think they, I knew the person, and I think they were just genuinely trying to help. And so after I got to the church, I sent one of my staff members over to our other building to to put away the loose electronic items. And, uh, and at the time, I, I began to think, you know, this is, this is going to be an interesting afternoon. And coached my soccer game, went back over to the uh, other building, put on my suit and tie for the funeral, whatever. It's about 15 minutes before the service, and a young lady came up to me and introduced herself. And I didn't know her, but I knew uh, some of her family. I said, oh, and she said, Pastor Keith, we are so glad that you're doing this service. We have been praying earnestly for you all week on this. And I thought, that's great. That's value the prayers, but I'm curious about the passion uh, behind that. And she said, and if you don't mind, I'd like to give you just a little background on the service that you'll be doing today. And I said, that would be very helpful. And she said, well, you would need to understand that there are some very inebriated people in the church building today. And I said, well, I'm I'm not surprised. It's my understanding that her husband, um, you know, was an alcoholic and struggled greatly with that. And she said, yeah, and he's, he's, inebriated today, as are a few others. And I said, okay. And she said, you would also need to know, and she named the deceased, she said, you would also need to know that she was a witch, and that some of the members of her coven are also uh, present today for the service. At which point, I'm starting to really understand that when I said, oh, sure, yeah, anything she wants, I was committing to far more than I really understood in, uh, in that moment. And so we I began the service, gave a greeting, a short prayer, and I introduced her uh, adult son who was going to be giving a few words of tribute to mom. And he got up and said a few things and, uh, about mom. And then he said those words that many of us pastors don't want to hear, particularly when the crowd is as I have described already today. He said, is there anybody else who would like to say a few words about mom? And I'm like, no. So, uh, um, but I was having, in the moment, we were kind of going with it, and, and a few people said a few things, and then her, um, her husband got up with the aid of a couple of the sisters in her coven who were holding him because he was so inebriated he couldn't stand on his own, and in slurred speech he said a few things that finished with language that I would not use in a church building and certainly not on Sunday morning with you, at which point the entire room erupted in applause. And I thought, what have I gotten myself into when I said, oh, sure, whatever she wants, right? Words can be cheap. So anyway, um, there's a whole lot more to the story, and there were some internal conversations happening in my heart, deciding as a pastor, when do I step in and what options do I get? But I thought, I get one opportunity with the gospel, with a group of people who who desperately need to hear it. So I'm going to draw the line at Jesus. You can say what you want about anything or anyone except Jesus. That's where we're going to draw the line. At the same time, completely rewriting the sermon that I had prepared, because the context in which I found myself was not at all what I thought I was going to be in. And then as I got up to give the sermon, once the impromptu open mic time ended, I got up and there was a gentleman standing at the back of the middle aisle with a completely shaved head and a brown canvas cassock and bare feet with his hands like this to the ceiling with five or six other people dressed similarly across the back. And I thought, who are you? Like, where are you from? What team are you on? Like, I, I didn't know. And I thought, I thought, man, those words seem so easy when it was on the phone. And I said, yeah, whatever. Whatever she wants, I'd be happy to do. And in that moment, I'm going, I had no clue what I was really committing to, right? There's a whole lot more to that story. 
But what I want you to understand is that it's so easy for us at times, particularly early, as we come to our life of, of following Jesus, of faith in him, easy for us to say, as did the man right here in verse 57, right? Oh, Lord, I would follow you wherever you go. And Jesus looked at him, and he said these words that seem so curious to us. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, verse 58. And we think, well, that sounds almost harsh. I mean, when you want Jesus to say to the man, that's awesome, I'm so glad you want to follow, you know, come along. But Jesus wants the man to understand that when you say, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus now is on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows full well that will involve suffering and death and crucifixion, and, uh, and far worse than the suffering that he'll endure at the hands of men is the uh, wrath of a holy God that he will take upon himself for you and I for the penalty of our sin. And Jesus says to the man, under Understand that when you say, I will follow you wherever you go, that is a costly commitment. It will not always mean the, the comfort and the safety and the convenience that perhaps you would naturally like. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but, but there will be cost and discomfort involved in this. Interestingly, later on, Jesus, with his disciples in Jerusalem, would have that conversation in the upper room. And, uh, and Jesus would say to them, you know, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter, right, as many of you would recall, you know, speaks out, oh, not at all, Lord, none of us would do that, right? In fact, we read it in Matthew chapter 26, verse 33. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Unless we pick on Peter, notice, and Matthew tells us, and all the other disciples said the same. Even if we have to die with you, we will never disown you. You just have to get a few verses later in that same chapter, right? They have their time of prayer in Gethsemane, and then Judas shows up with the crowd to arrest Jesus. And we read in verse 56 of Matthew 26, Then all the disciples deserted and fled him. Right? Hear the empty words in that, the cheap words? Oh, Lord, even if we have to die with you, we won't disown you. But all of the disciples deserted him and fled. To Peter's credit, he did follow, right, for a time. The house of Caiaphas, for the for a portion of the trial, but then when he was questioned, as Jesus had told him three different times, each time Peter said, no, no. So easy for us, right, to, uh, to offer cheap words and say, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. But then when we find ourselves in the midst of the challenge to that, when we realize just the, the cost that that may mean for us, then we desert him and flee, or at least we don't follow through on the commitment that we have made. So when this man comes along in verse 57 and says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever I go, Jesus just wants him to understand that that may involve cost to, and sacrifice when it comes to comfort, convenience, and what it will require of this man. And Jesus wants us to understand the same. There may be points in a service like this on a Sunday morning or when we first come to faith in Christ, we're just like, Lord, man, we're all in, whatever you want. And then we find ourselves in a situation where we're challenged, and Jesus says to us, well, you know, this is, this is what the journey is like. Are you really all in? What would you do? Ooh, ooh. Are you really sold out? 
or are you wanting to go your own way now? Cheap words. Secondly, we might say there are cheap expectations, and that we find in the other two that Jesus finds along the way. The first one I call setting conditions number one, because the man here wants to uh, use that phrase that you and I might also want to use at times in our walk with the Lord, but first. You see, because the commitment to follow Jesus and the surrender that he calls for in that may involve not just the surrender of the evil that we might be tempted to do or the sin that we might be tempted to do, but it may also, recall, may also require of us surrender of even the good things. You see that sometimes the greatest and most difficult choices we face as those who follow Christ are not those between what is intrinsically evil and that which is good, but rather that which is good and that which is best or getting those in the right level of priority. It might not surprise us that Jesus would call upon us to lay aside those things in our lives which are sinful, clearly not a positive influence, but what about, what about those that we would consider as good things in our lives? The second man, for example, right? Jesus says to him, verse 59, follow me. And the man replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. That seems like a reasonable request, and I would hope that my children, uh, when that day comes in my own life, are uh, concerned to, uh, to see to the appropriate lane to rest of their father. And particularly in the Jewish household of the time, the arranging for the burial of family members, particularly a father or mother, was considered extremely important. It was seen as a fulfillment of the obligation in the Ten Commandments to honor your father and your mother. And so, you would think, perhaps, that Jesus would be very understanding about such a request. Lord, but first, let me go and bury my father. And yet, Jesus' response may leave us scratching our head just a little bit. When Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What is it that Jesus is really saying? Is Is he saying that this gentleman shouldn't attend to such important family members No, but he may be suggesting very well to this man that his priorities are a little out of place and that while his need to attend to the needs of family members are important, anything like that important which comes before his devotion to Jesus is a problem. In fact, we're not told in this story, it could be perhaps that this man's father hasn't even died yet. And that this is this man's, of putting, this man's way of putting a condition on what he's willing to do in following Jesus. You see, that's the issue. That's the core here. It's the idea that there would be any condition placed on his devotion to follow Jesus. Lord, but first, let me take care of this, and, and then I'll follow you. You see, that's the problem. But first, it's not that what he was going to do for his father, whether that was now or several years in the future, the issue wasn't what he was going to do for his father, but it was those words, but first, before I would follow you, let me put these other things ahead of you, which leads us to the third man, also cheap expectations, this time the setting conditions number two. The third man also makes what we might think on its surface to be a reasonable request. I will follow you, Lord, but there are those words again, right? But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. 
Again, we would assume that that's a reasonable request. It, it was something actually in the Old Testament that the prophet Elijah had allowed of the prophet Elisha when he had called him to be his apprentice and successor as prophet. But, but Jesus' response here again seems somewhat harsh on the surface. No one, verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Whoa. Was Jesus saying here that to say goodbye to a family member is a bad thing? doesn't seem like there's anything inherently evil about that. And yet, again, the issue is not the saying goodbye to the family, right? It's the phrase that he put in front of that. But first. See, that's, that's the issue that Jesus is addressing with these men who would seem to say good things and express a good sentiment about what they would like to do. And yet, and yet they wanted to place conditions on their willingness to serve and to follow. Lord, but first. Jesus made an even stronger statement about that need a little bit later on. Luke tells us about it in chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. When we read there that large crowds began traveling with Jesus and turning to them, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Would Jesus call us to hate those in our family? No, Jesus is using hyperbole here, but to make that point, that even those things that we would consider in our lives as kind of high priorities and very good are good until or if they become a condition in place of what would what would need to be our greatest and highest commitment and devotion in our lives. Jesus wants us to care for our families. He wants us to love our family members, but not before or in place of him. You see, that's the issue, that, but first, if, but, but only if, Lord. Right? All of those ways you and I would seek to put conditions on him. And so I guess I would simply ask you, Are there any conditions that you're placing on what Jesus can do or who Jesus is in your life? Are there any but firsts that you put in your prayers to him or in your response to him as you you encounter his word or as you hear it proclaimed in your church or in another service? Are Are there any but firsts or if only that you would place on what Jesus would ask of you? Is there an aspect of your life that he can't touch or transform or change. It's a place you're just not willing to go with him. A, uh, an unwillingness to forgive someone when Jesus has called you to forgive. A, a call to ministry or mission as a vocation or a new phase of life in your vocation. You're unwilling to be obedient in following him. You see, the issue here is, is wanting still to retain some control of our life, some way of calling the shots some conditions we would place on what he can do. You see, Jesus' Jesus' call to follow him means that we are unequivocally no longer our own. Now Jesus is the one who is directing the show of your life. And there are no but firsts, or no but, but only if, Lord... Right? There are no, because that still retains control and direction for us. There is a significant difference between, between someone who is providing suggestions in your life and someone who has permission 
to run the show. There's a significant difference between someone who is providing suggestions and someone who has permission to run the show of your life. And that's the point Jesus is making here in Luke chapter 9. No, but firsts. No, but only if, Lord. None of, none of those conditions, none of those cheap words. But Jesus says, the call to follow me involves all of you. It involves everything, and that is costly. And there will be no conditions that you set to do that. Jesus himself set the example for that. Matthew tells us in that same chapter 26 that we were reading from before, and we talked about the disciples and their cheap words, empty words. Sandwiched between those two passages we read earlier is that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus takes the 11, right? And they head down and Jesus has a moment of prayer right before um, kind of this three days of, of just sheer terror happens. And Jesus goes there with his disciples. We read it, verse 36 of that chapter, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here uh, for a while while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's actually a very rich description in the Greek. Jesus was deeply, deeply troubled. Stay here, he says, and keep watch with me. And then we get this this intimate moment of prayer that Jesus shares with God in which he acknowledges the challenge that he has before him. And yet, and yet he says to God, there will be no conditions, right? Going a little farther, verse 39, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you Yet again, he comes back, verse 42, prays a second time, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And Matthew tells us there was a third time where Jesus prayed alike. Not my will, but yours is the very example of what Jesus had called these other two. And it is the challenge that Jesus calls you and I to. Not my will but yours. There's no place in there for, but first, Lord. But only if, Lord, right? Jesus says, not my will, but yours. Can you say that to Jesus and mean it? Can you say that in full knowledge of what Jesus is calling you to and and really be willing to let him not simply provide suggestions in your life, but to run the show? Or are there some but-firsts that need to be surrendered in your life? Was the founder of the Salvation Army, a great man who was once asked to reveal the secret of his success. And after some hesitation, tears came to his eyes and he said, I will tell you the secret. God has had all there is He said, there have been men with greater brains than I have, men with greater opportunities, but from the day that I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus could do with them on that day, I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth there was. It was that very response that led Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman 
his questioner to remark, I learned from William Booth that the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. Don't miss that. It's what Jesus is saying here. Learned from William Booth that the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. What would be the measure of your surrender? What would you do to fulfill your devotion to him? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this challenge, great as it is from your word. For Jesus says to all of us, follow me. For some of us, Lord, we have responded initially with the glee of that first one along the road. Oh, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And, and yet we have discovered that maybe that's not what we're really willing to do because there's cost involved. There's sacrifice. Perhaps we have discovered that, and now today is a day when we renew that willingness to mean the words that we have said before. Or perhaps others of us still want to run the show. Perhaps others of us still want to, to set those but firsts for you. Maybe even about some things we would consider good, but which have gotten in the way of that which is best or first, our devotion to you. And perhaps today is the day when we surrender those, when we give them up and we say, no longer, Lord, but first, but we say, I'm all in. Or as Jesus put it, not my will, but yours be done. God, challenge us with those words, not just, not just today in this service, but tomorrow as we walk into the life that uh, will, will happen for us in that day or the day after, the week after, whatever. May this be an ongoing thing in our lives, God, that as we become aware of the but first that we have put before you, may we be willing to surrender them and to say to you, not my will, to, to cease the Lord will give you the opportunity to offer suggestions today and to say, God, it's time for you to really run the show for my life. Help us. Help us to be able to do that. And in doing so, may you work through us to bring the redemptive transformation that this world so desperately needs. Walk with us through this week, God. Direct and guide our paths. Bring the power we need, the courage we need in the May all those that we come into contact and with whom we come into contact see, see an element of Jesus in us. For we pray it all in his precious and powerful name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Pastor Keith.